Welcome to PMI's podcast, Leading for Business Excellence. In this series, we've invited guests from across the globe and a multitude of different sectors to share with us their leadership insights and inspiring stories of business excellence. You'll hear how our guests have achieved amazing results through the application of business excellence, process improvement, and creating cultural change. I'm Susanna Clark, Managing Partner of PMI, the Performance Improvement Consulting and Training Firm. Today, I'm joined by Matt Lindley, a commercial airline pilot, former RAF-trained fighter pilot, and RAF Royal Squadron pilot, a sought-after human performance specialist, keynote, and TEDx speaker. In this podcast, Matt talks about the shift change in leadership behavior in the aviation industry and what we as business leaders can learn from this. His observations on the human performance factors and human limitations under pressure are really interesting. Listen out for his thoughts on how leaders develop trust, enable people to speak up, debrief effectively, motivate, learn and improve. Matt is a knowledgeable and engaging raconteur, so I'm sure you will enjoy his stories and experiences. Hi, Matt. Welcome to PMI's Leading for Business Excellence podcast. Uh, thank you so much for joining me today. Oh, it's a real pleasure. Looking forward to it. Nice to, uh, nice to have a chat. I uh, really appreciate your time. Thanks. Can we start off with you giving our listeners a bit of an introduction to yourself? Who are you, where you come from? A little bit of background about yourself. Yeah, sure. So uh, my name is Matt, Matt Lindley. Um, I'm actually a uh, commercial pilot. Um, which might surprise your listeners um, here to talk a little bit about uh, leadership. But my background is um, I spent many years in the Royal Air Force uh, flying all sorts of exciting airplanes, but I specialized on flying the Royal Family around for about 10 years. Um, while I was there, I developed a uh, interest in human performance factors. I was a flying instructor and I got quite into all the psychology of how we fly airplanes. I then left the Air Force. I now fly commercially, but I've continued this kind of interest in in how humans perform generally. So I had this kind of the, the dual hat, if you if you like. If I remember rightly, you started your career in the Royal Air Force. So what was it about that that first interested you? Why why the Royal Air Force? Well, I suppose like it was almost like um, the corny story, but it's absolutely true. <laughs> Going on, on holiday to Malta with the family, age three, and the story goes, so my mum recounts it, the aeroplane flew quite close to some bumpy clouds, some storm clouds. And whilst everybody was looking very anxious and nervous, I was loving it. And when I got off the aeroplane, said to my mum, mummy, I want to be a pilot. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm sure she thought I was going to become like a fire, wanted to become a fireman the next week, but I never sort of stopped going on about it. And I became absolutely obsessed with aeroplanes. Um, and then as a teenager, I was very lucky. Uh, mum and dad scraped together some cash and let me have um, a trial flying lesson. And after that, it was like an electricity bolt running through my body. I wanted to be a pilot, and I set my heart on being an RAF fighter pilot. That was it. At that 14-year-old was like, right, that is what I'm going to do, and nothing's going to stop me. So, And I managed to somehow bluff my way through it and <laughs> qualified as a fighter pilot in the RAF. Wow. 
And so I, I'm really not from a military background. Um, but tell me what, you know, what does that entail, learning and training to be a fighter pilot, particularly from the kind of, you know, what goes on um, in the communication perspective of how you are, you know, working together? Because presumably you're, you're normally going to be fighting as, as part of a crew or you're training as part of a crew and you're on missions as part of a crew. Yeah. So so initially, you, you know, you go for the selection and they're initially assessing you for your potential to be a pilot, but they also have to train you how to be an officer. So really, the first year of your, your career in the Air Force, it's all about learning basic skills to do with um, being an officer, an effective junior officer. Uh, very similar to the stuff that the Army do at Sandhurst and the Navy do at Dartmouth. So it's basic sort of leadership, communication, general military awareness. A lot of people find it quite hard going. I loved it. I felt it was, it was almost like it was almost like a boy's own adventure in a carry-on film. It was fantastic. Um, but it was really basic leadership. Um, and then you start your flying training. And as you go through flying training, you not only are learning the technical skills of flying an airplane, you know, the left, right, up, down, but you're also learn right from the very start the importance of the human factor, the crew mentality. How do we communicate? Because, you know, together, we're much stronger operating together. As long as you have a system and a process in order to facilitate that, rather than being that lone pilot, you know, operating the airplane by themselves, that's fraught with danger, basically. So, it's kind of it's a very gradual process. You learn basic leadership in the fields of Lincolnshire with a pine pole on your back, and then they let you lo loose on some nice, exciting airplanes. And then they slowly introduce this concept of crew mentality and pulling everything together. So I'm fascinated that you use the words system and process because we talk about that all the time. You know, we talk about understanding an organization as a system and needing the processes in place in order for the organization to function correctly. So can you tell me a bit, mm. bit more about that system and process mentality? Yeah. So I think I think the, the main thing is is if, if before we if, before I explain that aspect, it's maybe useful for your listeners to understand sort of back in the 1970s and 80s when we didn't do that, mm. when it was very sort of traditional. And, you know, we all strutted around in our uniforms, bars on our shoulders, looking terribly important. Egos the size of the airplane, you know. <laughs> and, and that sort of traditional leadership model equated really in a very basic way that the the more experience you got and the more bars on your shoulders represented good leadership and good decision making. And you know, that was absolutely flawed. It really was. And, and the industry generally and flying in the sort of 70s and 80s, th there were countless accidents that could have been avoided. And the root cause is always reported in the papers that it's pilot error. But it's not just pilot error. It's the whole system and the process was, was failing. So they kind of turned everything upside down and there was a revolution within aviation worldwide. And we scratched our heads and said, why on earth are these airplanes crashing? And, you know, it was as simple as our leadership models were wrong and we needed process and models to help people. I always think of it as like hanging, hanging your clothes on, on, on coat hangers. These processes and models have got to be simple. They have to be understandable and they have to be generic enough so that I can go and sit in an airplane with a colleague who I've never met before 
and we still understand when the pressure is on, we have these models. And, and I think that's the crucial bit, really. It's simplicity and also understanding that our human limitations, our vulnerabilities get exposed the, as, as workload and pressure is added. So I'm sure for lots of your clients, you know, you, you'll be talking about your, your processes here at PMI and, 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 and what you are trying to achieve is what a pilot is trying to achieve. You're trying to streamline and simplify to make, you would say, an efficient, well-performing organization. Yes. And for us, it's exactly the same, but one of our raison d'etre is, is safety. But it's the same thing. Keep it simple, empower people, and give them the models. Yes. And actually, that's quite interesting, the piece that you mentioned in there about the potential of moving into, you know, going onto an aircraft and potentially flying with someone who you've never met before. And that those systems and processes will give you the, the ways of working that means you can immediately be productive and trust each other. Yeah, trust is it, trust is really important. I think that's a really key word in 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 having an efficient organisation or having an efficient you know flight deck. Trust it, trust and simplicity, um, which then I think also we've gone down the road of empowering junior people. So, you know, I talked a little bit earlier about, you know, the captain was king and he or she was walking around with lots of bars on their shoulders. There's a very famous accident. Um, It's just dreadful, really, because people know it for being the largest single loss of life in aviation. Uh, It's the uh, Tenerife air disaster where two jumbo jets collided on the runway. And really, there's lots of things going on there, especially to do with communication. But that really part of it was to do with these autocratic leadership models, which were out of date. And the junior people who could see there was an accident developing didn't have the tools and the processes and the authority to speak up. So that's kind of where we've moved away from to try and make everything so much more simple, safer, and just flatten that authority gradient down. Because let's face it, the boss doesn't always have the right answers. The captain doesn't always have, you can't possibly notice exactly what's going on all the time if you are the person in charge. Your best asset is your team and your junior members around you. And they might just see something that is that golden nugget. So that's how we've approached it. And, you know, on top of that, we've tried to understand and educate not just pilots, but cabin crew, managers, engineers, all about these human factors and the limitations that we have when we apply uh, apply pressure. So, yeah, it really was a revolution in, 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 in the whole industry. The leadership models were turned upside down. So, it, I mean, that's fascinating, isn't it? And I think, I mean, you and I, we met through doing some work together with, with one of our clients who wanted to talk about this speak-up culture. Um, mm. And so that, that piece, I think, is really interesting in that whole dynamics of the hierarchy. You know, what are the things that um, you uh, worked with in the military on, on empowering the more junior members to be able to speak up and challenge leaders? Because I suspect that, you know, in many places, in many organizations, that's still not necessarily normal. It's not usual. So, yeah, I, I mean, in particular, it's particularly difficult in the military because, of course, we have very rigid rank structures. So not only like a business, you know who the boss is, but you are visually seeing that that's the boss. 
because they've got, you know, bars and ropes hanging off their shoulders and all sorts yes. of epilepsy. And, and, and so it, it's doubly difficult. But I think, I think the one thing, a few things that helped us break through that barrier. Um, the first is an, an awareness education of what happens if we don't do this. And what are the choke points when things go wrong? So the speak up culture has got to be in order to pursue the North Star, whatever that is. You know, in aviation, of course, it's safety. But but in a, in a business, it might be, you know, I do some work with pharmaceuticals, for example. It might be producing the get, – getting the correct drug to the frontline patient as quickly as possible or whatever the North Star of your company is. So you give people a voice and you empower them to speak up as long as it's for the good of the North Star or the task. People get nervous about it because, of course, there is a difference between assertion and aggression. So you give people the authority to speak up and it can be used in less than ideal situation because, you know, we're all human, for example. And I think that the, the bit to differentiate there is you speak up because you are task focused. You're doing it for the good of the task. You're not doing it for the good of your position, your power, or your status, because that's something very different. You know, you, it's been hijacked. So I think clarity of of what is our purpose, what is our mission, what is our north star, and that is the then the authority for people to speak up for the, for, for, the, for the good of it. But wow. you, you can. You can give people as much empowerment as possible. You can have the correct culture. But really, hand in hand goes with the leader. You know, the leader has got to encourage that. And the leader yes. has, got to, has got to communicate that. Because with the best will in the world, even if somebody wants to say something important for the good of the North Star, if the leader isn't on board with this, then there's all sorts of difficult dynamics then. Very difficult. Yes, because the, the bit about the the leaders uh, got to be got to listen, haven't they? They've got to they've got to be they willing do. to listen and 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 understand and 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 interpret and that message clearly. Yeah, and I think I think you know that's a good good point about listening. Um, we do quite a lot of work on a thing called setting the tone. You know, there's l- multiple research. Uh, papers done on on uh, you know nonverbal communication and what have you and the first five or six seconds as we know you set the tone now you know sometimes I'm you know tired I'm jet lagged and I'll I have to stop myself sometimes walking in to meet our crew members before I've consciously thought hang on a minute you've got a window of opportunity now to set the tone and if you get that wrong in the first five or six seconds they believe you've got to have about 10 or so transactions to undo the mess through the day that you've you've made in those initial few seconds so it's really the emphasis is most definitely on the leader to set the tone and and it, that requires conscious thought i think very few of us are natural leaders me you know me included and i think if there was one piece of advice I would give to anybody that's wanting to get that kind of speak up culture, that really healthy dialogue going, is give it some thought before you go blundering in when you're tired or stressed or late or something isn't going according to plan because you will immediately set the wrong tone and then forget it. You know, people will just, just sit there and not, not speak up. <laughs> so yeah. give it give it some thought. 
Yes, yes. And there is that. And, and, and you're absolutely right, because actually it is walking into situations without the plan that can be the biggest mistake, can't it? That's, that's yeah. the beginning of, as you say, ten, it takes you so much longer to, to unravel it. We all need to have that plan. Uh, you know, I've done it myself where you know, I've been in that mood or, or, or people don't understand the pressure that I'm under in a certain circumstance and I've got it wrong. And I always, I, I always look towards people who I, I, I admire in leadership roles. And I think, how do they do that? How do they set that tone? Because that's, for me, the vital sort of piece in the jigsaw is that initial meeting. Uh, because otherwise, it's you, you're up against it all the way through. So you you mentioned at the beginning that you went in to be a fighter pilot, but you also mentioned that you ended up flying the royal family around. So so tell me a <laughs> bit about that transition as well in your career. Well, you know, though they say that all good leaders should be should be humble and admit when they when they make mistakes. Well, <laughs> the the thing was with myself is I very I was a I was an ambitious average pilot. Um, and I went through the fast jet, fighter jet sort of training system. And, you know, there's a huge sort of dropout rate that people don't make it. So, you know, mm. you maybe start off with 10, 15, and you probably get five at the end of the process. I did get through it, and I got my wings awarded at Aria Valley on the Hawk. So that was it. I was living that boyhood dream. But then I things started going horribly wrong for me. Um, I, I, I reached the limit of my piloting abilities. And I had a few things going on in my head and it was just, I couldn't do the equivalent of like the junior Top Gun course. I wasn't very good at all the dogfighting and, 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 uh, sort of the exciting flying. And so I actually failed that course uh, just at the very end. So that must have been terribly all, disappointing I, I, right at the end as well. It was, it was a boyhood dream. It just yeah. kind of five or six trips before the end gone, but. I did manage to dust myself down and then decide, Matt decided he wanted a new <laughs> a new goal and that seemed to be get down to London and fly the royal family around. And so I went through a bit of selection and managed to bluff my way there and had 10 very, very happy years flying around the VIPs around uh, the Prime Minister and the, and the royal family. So yeah, it was a great job. So out of adversity, out of a, a pretty miserable situation, I'm pleased to say, you know, things did work out okay in the washer and I, I loved it down there <laughs> good good I'm glad to hear that and so having gone through everything um with the fighter pilot training and the officer training that you did then finding yourself being responsible for the jets that were flying the royal family around <clears throat> any difference from a from a you know being a leader in that situation that you notice no I mean I think you know at the end of the day <laughs> Whoever is on board that aircraft, whether it's just myself or cabin crew or royal family, you know, they all, it sounds a very a corny cliche, everybody's equally as precious cargo. You know, we, we, we don't change the way we fly. I suppose the only thing that you, you, you did, you did have interface with, with important people. So you maybe got develop your sort of communication skills a wee bit more and, and be a, maybe a little bit more diplomatic. But um, no, you know, at the end of the day, that door opens, people get on board that aircraft, wherever you're flying, and you are responsible for for their safety. And so as long as those, we talked earlier on about those processes, as yeah. long as those processes and the standard operating procedures are simple, they're understandable, you know, and they're robust, then it doesn't matter who you fly, you still stick to those same procedures. Um, so yeah, but it was a it was a fantastic job. It really was. I loved it. I bet. I bet. So from flying the royal family around to 
commercial airline world. Again, I'm interested um, in what differences you noticed, particularly around systems and processes, um, leadership, all of the things that we were talking about that were well established for you um, uh, in the Royal Air Force. Did you notice a difference coming into a commercial airline? Very, very similar. The only thing is, is obviously an airline, uh, an airline would be more risk averse than the, the the military, perhaps. So uh, the main thing that I found generally about my progression through flying is that I've worked out one really crucial thing that you know probably we all do as we go through life, especially if you're business leaders, is that rarely is a fast decision a good decision. I find, you know, in flying and in life generally is a rushed decision is problematic. And, you know, I, I've analyzed this. I've gone into why this is. And it's, it's, it's well documented, the things to do with fight, flight, freeze, brains and what have you. But the main thing is, is that uh, as you go through flying and make that transition from leaving the military, you actually have to slow down your decision making. Because what you want to do is you want to carry everybody with you. You want to carry your best asset, which is your cabin crew, which is your, you know, your your fellow pilot, the engineers on the ground. It takes a lot of people to safely move an airplane from A to B. And if you're if in the military, for obvious reasons, I think you know you're trained slightly differently in the fact that um, you could be in positions where you are under fire, perhaps, or you're flying very fast at very low 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 level, so you you don't have much time to react. So you know you do have to be that bit quicker. And they advocate, just make a decision and, and whatever you say, say it loudly, <laughs> get on with it. Mm. Whereas, you know, I, I did have to learn to slow things down a bit. I must admit, though, I, you know, when I look back at the military leadership model, and I believe it's probably changed a little bit now because, you know, I'm a bit long in the tooth. But when I went through the leadership training at RAF Cranwell, before I even got on my hands on the aeroplane, I... I, I I'm going to say something quite controversial. I wasn't a massive fan of it, uh, and I'm still not. Um, it was a very basic leadership. It was more decision-making and problem-solving. And then whatever solution you came up with, you just said it with authority and you said it loudly. And I mean, I remember one thing that is very different to now how, how we operate airplanes is if somebody, if you didn't have the solution and you were you were struggling and somebody in your team did – the way they taught you was to take that person aside, take their idea, and then come back and claim it as your own and just say it really loudly. And for me, wow. that is crazy. That's absolutely the wrong way. There was no empowerment. There was no you know, congratulations, encouragement. That's a great idea so-and-so has got. And I found that very frustrating. The fact it's kind of like just so basic. Um, and, and, and I don't think personally that is – the way forward at all. In fact, I'm a massive advocate of a kind of laissez-faire um, uh, approach by by leaders, and the fact that they should be directing and empowering people uh, to to come up with ideas, to options generate. You know, and you should just hopefully be able to sit back and keep that big picture. Um, and certainly, yes. that's what I've tried to do. You know, uh, I, I try and use um, certainly open questions are absolutely brilliant at this it just you know you should, yeah, if i see colleagues who are really good at this I, I sit in awe of them because they just manage to just sit back 
and just get everybody else using open questions to come up with the solutions and an action in it. And I think that is, for me, very unlike the basic leadership role of in, in the military, which was just say something and say it authoritatively and loudly. But I guess they were probably trying to come up with a very sim- a simple model for new entrant, you know, junior officers or what have you. Yes, and I wonder if there's something about the sort of difference between, um, for want of a better word, tactical, you know, in yeah. the moment compared to the big picture. You know, if you're if you're a leader in an organisation, holding the big picture is really really important. But in times of crisis, more tactical, speedy decision making is obviously an, an imperative. Yeah. And I think I think it's quite interesting because you know, you in that tactical situation flying a plane that there are there's often I, I not often there are situations where you may be you know it might be dangerous you've got to make decisions quickly but you've you've got to have the system to try and make those decisions right yeah. it's it's how do you make the fast decision but have a process that ensures it's as good as it could be yeah in that yeah moment? i mean there, there are ways there's kind of halfway houses aren't there and and the halfway house that i kind of advocate is a more collaborative decision making model you know Using a process that people still have a voice to speak up, but yet the, the 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 leader is very much in charge and make and you can do when you get good at that you can do that quite quickly, you know you might just have missed that vital piece of information and and I think the military is you know it, it's a kind of a unique organisation the fact that you, they have to cater for that situation where they're under an awful lot of pressure and lives may well you know depend on it. But, um, yes. in, you know, in, in, in flying, unless you're whizzing around helicopter at low, low level or, or a fast jet, in, in any other situation, I think slowing things down and using your crew is, you know, is, is by far the, uh, the, the, the best way of, of doing it. Um, I mean, it, it, yes, in particular, I mean, there's, there's something always to bear in mind in sort of like that decision making models is the the importance and the dominance of the survival brain and when it kicks in. Um, if you are the leader and you're, you know, autocratic and very directing, I think the danger is, is that you become the threat to your colleagues. People are scared of you. And that shuts down that collaboration. It shuts down the conversation because you suddenly become yes, no, fight, flight, you know, and, and, it's the um it's the sympathetic nervous system kicks in and 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 it becomes the dominant the dominant thing in 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 everything that your colleagues are feeling there's a lot of protect yourself yeah isn't there i mean I, you, know, you protect yourself first because it's yes if i've got a, a, a you know a highly autocratic boss who, who doesn't behave in a way who wants to hear what i've got to say then i'm i'm frightened for my job you know in the long term yeah. if i am brave enough to say something and actually just think it would be easier not to yeah i mean if you think you know if you if you've got a deadline or presentation or you're you're giving something to the boss that situation in itself is the saber-toothed tiger that's coming to eat you you know that's the thing and and because the survival brain is so powerful they believe it's five times stronger than you know the normal human brain right then suddenly that becomes very counterproductive um, so I think we need to be really mindful of that. There is a, pl- a case in every situation where you could say autocratic leadership is is it right and appropriate. Sometimes we need to be told, we need direction. Mm. But I think if you're doing it all the time, be careful because colleagues, crew members, or whatever, then see 
see you as the threat effectively, yeah, the, the whole situation. And the brain can't differentiate. That's the problem. It can't differentiate between a saber-toothed tiger and you know, a difficult client or a challenging meeting or something. We go through this whole sort of process that shuts down our effectiveness um, in decision-making, really, and communication. So we have to be careful about that, I think. Most definitely. So in the course of your career, in the, in the different um, uh, places that you've been working as a pilot and, you know, as a, as a, as a working with leaders on, on their skills as well, who would you say has been the biggest influence for you? Well, I've, I've had, I think I've only, only come across one natural leader mm-hmm. in my life, I think. And I was very fortunate that this guy um, was uh, my line manager <clears throat> at a very pivotal part point in my life, um, a guy called Wing Commander Tom Barrett. And Tom, I think it's fair to say, he's probably not being dramatic here, but pretty much changed my life a little bit um, through his effect. And that's quite a strong thing to say. But when I I first joined the military, um, I made a very conscious decision. Uh, There was a ban on gay people joining the armed forces, you may well remember. And, you know, all the way up to, I think it was 1992, they could put you in military jail if they found out you were gay. And um, up to 2001, I think it was, you would still be dishonorably discharged. Well, I made a very conscious decision because by the time I was sort of 20 or so, I was, it was dawning on me that I was gay, but I still wanted to be a pilot. So I was in the closet for the first half of my career while, the, while it was against the law. And when the law changed, um, I got outed effectively at work, which was very difficult and wow. you know now is the best thing that ever happened to me but at the time it was like an earthquake of emotions and it was just imagine. dreadful but oddly tom was my line manager so when this all happened you know i didn't phone all my friends for support i went into his, into his office like automatically and and i think that was probably because inherently i trusted tom and then I went to his office and had a total meltdown, but quite embarrassing, really. <laughs> but um, the way Tom dealt with me, this is why I say rather dramatically, you know, he changed my life over about a, you know, an hour, an hour and a half. Tom displayed the most amazing kind of inclusive leadership skills. And he wasn't, this is why I think he's a natural leader, because he wasn't trained in whatever we want the buzzword today, diversity, inclusion or whatever. And um you know, he, he, he just was quite remarkable in, in, in how he dealt with it. And it was really simple. The skill he demonstrated was listening and empathy. I mean, it, it, was, it was as simple as that. Um, and in fact, actually, I, when I, I spoke to him after the event many years later and said to him, hey, you know, how was it when I came into your office and had that meltdown? Yeah. And he, he, he did say something rather nice. He said, look, I, I realize that that was a, you're obviously in pieces, um, a pivotal moment in your life. And I didn't want to get it wrong. <laughs> and I didn't know what to do. So in a crisis, he went and made me a cup of tea. But actually, he told me afterwards, he actually needed to get to the tea bar to try and process what was going on and what his next steps were. And um, yeah, he just sat down and he tried to put his feet in my shoes and try to understand what had been going on. Um, you know. He didn't kind of solve the problems. He didn't come up, even come up with a plan. Most military officers are very sort of plan orientated, me included. And I'd have probably 
come out with a plan. It's 10 easy steps to deal with, you know, a gay pilot on your squadron. Yes. But he didn't at all. He just listened. So really remarkable. And I think I think those skills all boiled down to the fact that why did I go see him? It's because somehow he developed trust on the squadron, not just with me, but just generally his leadership was very sort of human, very sort of all the buzzwords like you'd say today, psychologically safe environments. But at the end of the day, we just trusted him. You know, he was quite remarkable. Absolutely. I mean, as, as you were telling that story, which I can only, I can't even begin to imagine how awful that situation must have been for you. But as you said, the fact that he clearly had had your trust and he demonstrated that he was a leader that you could go to. The fact that he gave you a good listening to, um, that's yeah. sort of phrase we use in PMI is that we, we need to give a client a good listening to. Um, okay. And then, and, then, and then the piece about the slowing it down, you know, the going to make the cup of tea, slowing mm. it down, giving one's brain time to, to do that processing to then be able to come back and, and resolve the problem, the crisis. It, it, that story encompasses all of that. Really. Yeah, he was, he, he was quite remarkable because I, he'd only been my line manager for about, I don't know, three months, four months. Uh, and I still find it quite remarkable. I went into his office and just told Tom this, this secret that I've been cherishing for like 26 years and controlling, and then all of a sudden I'd lost control of it. And so I'm, I turned to him, which is odd but you know on those three months not nothing to do with me but it was very evident when he first arrived he was very different to the normal military leader he was very um he championed the junior you know he, he was like a dog with a bone with a few causes for people who are lower down in the squadron that you probably wouldn't expect the squadron commander to really get involved with but he but he did and you know i also had the luxury of i was his flying instructor prior to this so i because i was an instructor and he even though he was a, a two ranks higher than me i taught him how to fly the airplane and um i remember him saying to me we were in some city on a night stop and he'd had a bit of a rough couple of days on the on the on the course and even though he was the boss he wasn't doing that brilliantly and he said to me matt you've got to help me. What, 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 what do I need to really work on? Because I, the last thing I want to be is embarrassed in front of my co-pilots. You know, I'm not doing very well. And I remember thinking, it's quite a big statement for an ex-fighter pilot squadron boss to say, I'm finding flying this little airplane quite difficult. Yes. Can you help me? And, and, you know, and I think that was a real sort of reflection of, of, of who Tom how Tom led really. He was, he was, he was quite willing to admit when he went wrong. I mean, he was also, I should say, he wasn't just a nice guy. He wasn't a, a pushover in any way, shape or form. He was, um, you know, he was a harsh man. He'd get you doing things that you disagreed with on the squadron. But I think the, the skill he really did have, he was very good at, at empathy and listening. Um, yeah, it was remarkable. Yes. Yeah, so I think, as, you know, it is, it is um, something that is common to Dupont has written about is that, uh, the leadership uh, willingness, or the leader's willingness to to admit they're not doing very well at something, to to admit they don't know what to do. That you know the expectation is that there's something magical that's happened when you've become a leader and you know the answers to everything almost. And, and so, to, so to be that honest and open, I think is 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 a real testimony to him. Yeah, and he also realised that at the time because I was I had the knowledge. You know, he was still the boss, but I had the knowledge. He needed that knowledge 
he was using my knowledge you know he was using his troops he was and i was one of them so yeah and when i've spoken to other people about about tom and you know we've all got very similar memories um of, of how effective he was but uh, effectively you know it, the things that he got up to was were very selfless really you know he would try and fight your corner and look after you and and it, and it came through so i think it's it's something that i've always taken on board is that when i have a, a tricky situation i do think how if tom was in this situation kind of what would he do you know how would do tom deal with this and and yeah i i don't even claim to be half half the sort of leader that he is at, at all but you know i've learned i've learned some traits from him that i try to emulate mm. so through all the the work that you have done both in the military and um in commercial aviation what 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 are the things that you think that the the a, a business um can can learn from those environments yeah so i would say i would say it's making this transition from the stuff that we've learned in flying for a safety reason and if you take away the word safety and replace sort of performance or optimizing performance at the root cause of it is is understanding how we tick as humans so you know i know you, you your organization is very you know you look at the process and you know very successfully transform clients businesses but i do think generally there is a piece of the jigsaw that sometimes gets forgotten and that is when we're chasing KPI targets and, you know, processes and what have you. Sometimes we forget the little old person, you know, and, 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 and what happens naturally to us all when the pressure is applied. And it's, it's no reflection on us being, you know, poor at our jobs or what have you. In fact, I turn it around and I say, if you are self-aware and you can learn about how we tick as humans, like the aviation industry has taught its personnel and the military have, then you can really enhance all of the good stuff that is done on process and streamlining and, you know, what have you, because it's, there's a real place there for human understanding human limitations, because it then goes off into how do we then change our leadership model? How do we then change our decision-making model? And then we can bring clever things in like, debriefing where we celebrate success rather than it being claimed as a post-mortem which i often hear yes um so it's kind of like i think overall you know we we can we can we can improve most organizations as long as they don't think of it as a nicety as soft skills you know and and tree huggy stuff is actually how people tick when commercial pressures are applied on them um and it can really help. It can really help. Uh, so that's what I kind of I, I'm quite interested in is bringing the the one the one across from one side into the other. Um, yeah, I think it's fascinating because I know we talk a lot about the um, uh, the learning. You know that 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 um, sometimes people are guilty of making an improvement, um, but the learning that went through the, the the process of improving to get to the outcomes, then the, the ability to share that in a meaningful way with others.
us sometimes isn't as effective or or just is missed. And and that yeah. when you talk about debriefing, that resonates to me because that feels like it's it's that debrief is is for learning. Am I right? It is. So it's really important with the debrief to to acknowledge when things go wrong, we are going to learn, as you've outlined there. And, and it's how you do that in a non-emotional, non-personal way. And the, the very worst thing, if there's any blame culture, we've got to stamp that out. Because again, you're doing it for the North Star. But the other thing about with debriefing, like at the end of every single flight, we will do a debrief and it'll take five minutes might take two minutes. But for 90% of the time, you're talking about what you did well. So you're reinforcing positive behavior. And then sometimes there's something that you can all learn from. But it just feeds back into that loop of understanding the way you're ticking, what you're good at, what you're not so good at. But as the collective, we're having a very non-emotional, non-personal conversation, which is capturing what we do really well. And, and and then improving the bit that, you know, needs a little bit of attention. And I really saw this in the NHS where, it, you know, I haven't worked with them for a couple of years, but, you know, they, that organization was being browbeaten and, and everything was turning into negativity because, you know, there were managers looking over the front line and and they felt under pressure there was a lit- there is a litigation and blame culture and so they only did debriefs really or didn't only do debriefs but it was very much you know reflecting things that hadn't gone well and you've got to have that but the real power of routine debriefing is the positive and you can use this as a motivational tool you can use it as if you're a middle manager and you get everybody together and you say, I know it's been a hard day today, but you you nailed it. You did this, that, and the other, blah, blah, blah. Well done. Government organizations that I work with quite regularly, it's remarkable how rarely people say thank you and you did well. Mm. And the debrief tool is such a a brilliant, flexible, simple tool that can be used for process improvement, of course, but also can be used as an effective management tool, I think. Yes, and I think that, you know, you're right, because so often in the moment, the people involved don't recognise what they do well. They no. just get to the end, you know, <laughs> be that yeah. the end of a day, yeah, end of a shift. That's it, you've survived the shift. And then, all, and then the other thing is you don't want to sit there for 20 minutes, half an hour talking about it. You want to get to the car park and go home. So the other thing is with it, it's got to be effective, it's got to be simple, and it's got to be punchy. Sure, if something big's gone wrong, then you do something much more reflective and you pull everybody together. But, you know, the debrief is such a simple way of of enhancing an organization. It really is. I, th- I think one other thing as well to maybe um, to, to mention as well is um, on the sort of that leadership general subject, one thing I've noticed as well, just to further what the question you asked me earlier on about what we, can we take you know, from aviation is this thing called emotional contagion. Okay. We've all probably gone into work where, you know, you're firing all cylinders, you're ready to get stuck in and you get in there and you're working with a difficult client or a colleague that just sucks your enthusiasm. And it spreads, doesn't it? It spreads through whoever that person gets in contact with. And we, we, we mimic behavior that we see 
and it's infectious. So if I do it, if I was yawning now and you saw it, then if all you, if all your your listeners could could see me yawning, they'd all probably start yawning. If I start, la- you know, put uncontrollable laughter on, people will smirk and smile. We mimic behaviour, and I think I've seen it on board, and it's something to be really mindful of. Is that for those of you in leadership roles who are listening, you're infectious in a good way or in a bad way. You're contagious, you know. And remember that. So when we are feeling a bit low or miserable or whatever, and you and you and you're dealing with a, a really difficult client or whatever, however, you, it goes back to that setting the tone. I think it will spread. All right, because we mimic behaviour. It's also the survival brain. Um, so watch out. <laughs> yes, and that autocratic leader who complains that nobody ever speaks up and says, you know, nobody contributes. It's, the responsibility is all theirs. Actually, well, look at yourself because if you're not behaving in that way that's open to, to feedback, open suggestions, then no, you're never going to get them. Yeah, and we just, we just, I, I think as pressure in organizations, you know, my organization as well, but as pressure increases and we performance is everything, targets are everything, then it always keeps coming back to this, this bit that gets missed, which is the human bit. If we can get the human bit going, Actually, it improves the bottom line because you get more out of people. People are more content. People feel engaged. People are empowered. They're part of the process. If we just think, oh, yeah, we'll do that course later or, you know, it's, it's the tree huggy stuff or that's HR stuff. It's actually, it's quite short-sighted, really, because you, at the end of the day, you want your people to be happy and you want them to be engaged. And it's, we're all human beings. And so I think an awareness of how we tick is, is very useful in the workplace. Yes. I remember when I first joined PMI listening to um, one of our original founders um, and she said uh, that people uh, come to do their best work every day and that we should start on that principle, believing that principle. And, you know, that had never occurred to me. Yeah. And after I thought, yes, of course. If we believe that, then our attitude towards everybody is, of course, that they're they're doing their best. Yeah, and I think there's one word that's. Have you heard of um, Professor James Reason, the guy that came up with the Swiss cheese model in Manchester University? He he. If you go into an organisation that has got sort of a blame culture, and you try and unpick the blame culture, you put in a process to deal with people making mistakes. But at the very beginning of that whole process, the word intention is so important. Most people are good people trying to do their best in difficult circumstances at work. There is no intention to make a mistake or to underperform. And I think if you start with, you know, if things do not go according to plan, then you can follow flowcharts which take you through an intention-based you know, solution to, to, to what's going on. But uh, as you said, for your, you know, your founder, most people go into work and they just want to do their best, that they're, they're good people doing their very best. And as pressure, pressure is mounting, then it exposes those limitations. So intention is really important. Once we get the spotlight of blame going on people, the danger is it's the old iceberg model. You know, everybody brushes things under the carpet. They don't own up to anything. And then the organization is largely unaware that it's steaming towards the iceberg, you know, and and then something bad happens. So I'm a real advocate of speaking up, owning up, 
and owning something that hasn't gone according to plan for the greater good of the organization because you know we, we are good people trying to trying to do our best mm. yes yes and and the end you're absolutely right so one of the questions that i like to ask every guest i interview is if reincarnation was a thing for you yeah and you could come back as any leader who would you come back as and why wow okay i i I work in aviation so i've always quite admired richard branson the reason i admire him even though i don't fly for his airline um, (laughs) cheers richard um is is i admire his tenacity and that he will push the boundaries but in particular that he is, I suppose we could say, uh, neurodiverse. He's, he's, he's dyslexic. And so he has overcome something that can be seen as a disability by society sometimes. And actually, I really love the fact that the, the diversity of thought of different people can produce somebody like Richard Branson, who, who's you know, brain is probably slightly differently wired because he's slightly dyslexic. But I, I, I'm sure that he will be looking at every situation in just ever such a slightly different way. And he's done really well. So I kind of like that, that he's he's overcome that the dyslexia and, you know, he's a performer as well. He's a, so I, I, I'm, I'm quite a fan of Richard Branson's, I have to say. Brilliant. Thank you, Matt. And Matt, you know, thank you for your time today. It's been absolutely fascinating talking to you. I absolutely love all of your, the stories and, and what we can learn, um, you know, about human limitations and how we can overcome them, particularly then learning from everything that you've learned in the aviation industry into businesses. I think it's fascinating. Thank you. Oh, you're welcome. I've, uh, I've loved it. So thank you for the opportunity to chat to yourself and your uh, listeners. Thank you so much for listening today. And I really hope you enjoyed this episode with Matt Lindley, Leading for Business Excellence. If you'd like to know more about how you can develop your career in business excellence and transform your organisation, please drop us a line, team at pmi.co.uk. We'd really love to hear from you. Thank you.